Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, Kate Kettlecamp. Kate is the founder of Kronos Astrology and is currently enrolled as a doctoral candidate in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies. In this conversation, Kate discusses her interest in imagination and the concept of lost or negative imagination. We consider the hermetic principle of as above, so below. Kate then discusses astrology as a timekeeping technique. From there, we discuss the planet Saturn, a planetary body which carries charge for many individuals. We next discuss the process of enlightenment before diving into a discussion of natal charts. Next, we examine Kate's natal chart with a focus on her third and ninth houses, as well as her sun, moon, and rising signs. We then discuss psychedelics and the integration of psychedelic experiences through modalities such as astrology and meditation. Then we discuss experiences of epiphany while in altered states of consciousness and concepts including Maya, the dark night of the soul, and descent into the underworld. From there, we review my natal chart, touching on the constellation of Capricorn and the planet Mercury or Hermes. We next consider whether the moon could be artificial, the idea of predictive programming, and the impact of apocalyptic literature. From there, we discuss extraterrestrials and our ongoing astrological shift from Pisces into Aquarius. Kate then provides a brief history of astrological philosophy and highlights that millionaires don't work with astrologers, but billionaires do. Kate next highlights major upcoming astrological transitions in the hope that in the age of Aquarius, Saturn will relieve humanity with an unveiling of reality. We end the conversation with an optimistic vision for the future. This outro is called Astrology, Alchemy, and Theurgy. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entanglepodcast.substack.com. This outro includes both Kate and my astrological birth charts, so it may be helpful to review those charts while listening to this episode. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist Entangled the Vibes. If you like the show, please drop a five-star review and subscribe on Substack, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please enjoy! So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. Tonight, I'm very excited to be joined by my friend, Kate Kettlecamp, the founder of Kronos Astrology. Kate, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining the show. Really excited to have you on and talk about all things astrology and more. Yeah, so I think to start with, maybe it'd be great just to get a little bit of your background. You know, where'd you grow up? How did you end up... Um, getting involved in astrology? How did you end up with your current PhD program in consciousness, cosmology? And what's the third one? Philosophy. Philosophy, yeah. <laughs> Had there to think for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Had to philosophize for, yes. for a second. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in Illinois in a rural town of Taylorville and moved out to Colorado about six years ago. My friend and I came out to work on an organic farm, and I have been doing all of my higher education virtually, so it worked out to to go wherever, and so I landed here. Yeah, and you, you've picked some interesting virtual education paths, so I would love to hear kind of how you decided to get into the fields that you got involved in. Yeah, definitely. So... I did my undergrad at a school named Olivet 
and studied English literature. <laughs> and then that led me to study abroad, do a study abroad program at Oxford University. And that was really what inspired a love for academia and pursuit of knowledge. I took a class called the intellect and the imagination and really fell in love with this concept of the imagination and rationality. And I've always been interested in spirituality and making sense of religion and culture and grew up with a connection to Christianity, but was always a skeptical child and kind of just followed my passions to philosophy, asking all those fun questions of why is there anything that there is and how and how can we make sense of it? And as I got more and more into philosophy, I started to look for tangible expressions of philosophy and life and culture. And that was what really led me to my grad program, my PhD program in cosmology and consciousness, because that program incorporates so much of our current situation on earth and our ecological crisis and the mental health crisis and what we're doing to address those things and mm -hmm. how philosophy can be a tool in this time to lead people to a more hopeful existence. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, a lot, a lot of big topics you just touched on. So a lot of things come to mind. Um, I guess first question is you talked about imagination. Tell me what, what does imagination mean to you and why is it so fascinating? That is a great question. That is a question I've asked myself year after year, just over and over again. What is it about the imagination that has compelled me so much? And I think that there's an element of lost imagination for me in my personal life in terms of... What do you of, mean by that, lost imagination? Well, I was a very creative kid, very imaginative, as most children, all children are. And I remember coming up with whole narratives and, you know, I used to play with Beanie Babies and <laughs> Barbie and everything had a story and like a grand story and it felt very uninhibited and fun. And I think the lost imagination for me is losing touch with that almost. And not only losing touch with the, the more positive imagination, but also being trapped in negative imagination. Um, and the negative imagination I think is, anxiety because anxiety is imagination about the future but imagining everything that could possibly go wrong right yeah so that's been something that i've dealt with and i know a lot of people have especially in the midst of covid and you can see the way that people are really overtaken by their imaginations yeah and i think that Astrology is one thing that helps you kind of harness that imagination and start to channel it towards more positive beliefs about your life. Interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, talk more about that. How, how, how does astrology help you channel your imagination? So astrology is very creative. Um, I'm sure you've experienced that in your study of it as well. It's not a belief system necessarily. I wouldn't say it's not a religion. I don't think you necessarily quote unquote believe in astrology or not. I think it's a, a tool in there's definitely a um, divine aspect of it, but a lot of it is storytelling and using your your memories and your hopes and dreams and wishes and coming up with a grand narrative for your yeah. life. Yeah, so it's really interesting you talk about astrology as it relates to, you know, being a belief system or, you know, more of an art or or what have you. And um, you know, I've I've taken a little bit of of class in a um Vedic astrology course um that, you know, is kind of rooted in the belief system of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Mm-hmm. And he calls it um the science of transformation and the technology of prediction. Mm, I love that. Talk to me about what you think about that. <laughs> the science of transformation. And, and the, the technology of prediction. Mm. Yeah. So the science of transformation, I love the word science. I love science in general. I think a lot about the way that astrology and science used to be so integrated and it was completely normal for someone to be a mathematician and a scientist and then also read people's birth charts and now everything is very divorced but back then i think that people had such a desire for knowledge and a holistic knowledge that transformation was so integrated into the desire to pursue anything theoretically. And even uh, you see that with the philosopher's stone and the alchemist, it's, it was, they were trying to make gold, but they Mm -hmm. also hand in hand with that, were trying to transform themselves. Uh And so I think that the science of transformation brings that back for me a little bit is that there's something scientific about it and also something extremely transformative. Yeah. And it also gets into like, what is alchemy and how do alchemy and astrology Mm -hmm. relate to one another? Because I think we have in our modern era, this very watered down version of alchemy where it's like, oh, these guys were trying to turn lead into gold to, you know, make a lot of money. And it's Mm -hmm. like, there's much more profound philosophical lessons in that. And for me, what's been most, I mean, there's so much that's been fascinating about what little I know about astrology. I mean, it's such just like a deep and profound and just ancient wisdom, but like it, to me, it feels like it's just as much as much about the stars as it is about the human physiology. Right. And so then it's naturally like it gets into, we are this constant state of transformation. And, and if we can combine our knowledge of the macro with astrology, with, the sacred alchemy that's how you can maximize your yes actualization yeah it's the the old saying as above so below yeah the the code that we're seeing in the sky is at work in the psyche and in the body yeah talk some more about like what is that code that you know you see in the psyche and the body so a common thing that i hear is people have a skepticism around astrology because 
there's a question around how can Saturn change or affect anything about my life? What does the planet Saturn have to do with me? Yeah. And I come from the belief that astrology is an ancient timekeeping technique. Mm. And it's almost as though we've cracked a code of mm. sorts. Mm. Of It's not that Saturn is exerting any gravitational force that's changing your life. It's that for thousands of years, we've studied what Saturn does at this degree at this time. And we have data for that. And so that can inform our predictions bringing in that technology of prediction yeah. that informs our predictions yeah. then about what might happen now that Saturn is back in that spot in the sky. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. And I like to think of the world and the universe as much more like probabilistic right. than like just Absolutely. And that, I think that that's important to note too, for anyone that's interested in astrology or once again, astrology reading, it's, it's a, probability game someone might be able to predict things for your life but no one has all the answers and i think most people would tell you that there's a range a spectrum of the way that something can manifest and that's where the optimization can come in too is Mm. if this energy is being thrown at you i'm of the belief that you have some level of of will in the situation Mm -hmm. where you could Mm -hmm. potentially channel that energy in a different way. Yeah. And that's something we've talked about before is just the concept of free will and, you know, how determinism is impacted, you know, as you dive deeper into astrology. Like personally, I think I was very staunchly in the camp of free will. Absolutely. And I still am, but I think that I also recognize that there are greater forces at play that we are part of a macro dynamic process and environment and so we are also dependent on what is going on in the greater you know environment cosmos around us yeah that's a great point it's a it's an interconnected system and systems like astrology have that capacity to remind people of the disparate parts within themselves and within society and the collective and how we can forge channels between Mm. ourselves and other people and, you know, even within ourselves. Yeah. And what do you mean by that when you say forge channels? I familiar with parts work, Mm. inner family systems. It's a therapy technique, but essentially it works with the concept that the, the psyche can have two completely different desires simultaneously could be a part of you that wants one thing and a part of you that wants a completely different thing. And a lot of the psychological tension people feel is that they can't handle that duality. And mm-hmm. so they will ping back and forth or mm-hmm. feel at, in conflict with themselves. And what parts work does is ask someone to have an allowance for two things at once and I think astrology can offer a similar way of thinking of, you know, you've got your Aries sun, but you have your, you know, Virgo moon. And those are two different energies and it can help people ping back and forth between their own unique disparate parts and make a creative story out of it. That makes sense. I mean, I got to say when we had our natal reading, which I think was like June of last year, 
I uh, was interested in learning more about astrology, but I had never had like any natal reading or anything. And I was like, I was kind of taken aback at how like, that's what I'm looking for, like insightful or just like penetrating it was. Like I felt very like naked. I was like, oh, like this is like, this is like, you, you know me just by being able to read this right here. It's crazy. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know what they're signing up for. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, but I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like awareness is the first step to, I don't want to say like. I mean, maybe self-improvement, right? It's just like constantly, you know, knowing what you're weak at, what you're, what you're strong at. And I think we always have blind spots. So it's good to just kind of check in and, you know, find someone you trust to say, Hey, here's what the stars indicate your kind of predilections are based on when you were born. And, you know, that can be really valuable feedback and you certainly are, are allowed to take it and, and, you know, reject what you don't agree with. But for me, I think it was just like, it helped shatter the glass on some things that like, you know, I knew about myself, but I didn't want to admit, Yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think it's easier to admit something when you feel like it's slightly out of your control. And that's a nice thing that astrology does is you're like, okay, this was maybe in the stars from the beginning of my life and I'm a control freak. And (laughs) (laughs) But see, I would argue that sometimes, you know, the the astrology skeptics use that as a reason to kind of shame and say, Oh, people are just, you know, using this to pawn off the blame on any of their, you know, actions. Definitely. Yeah. I support doing that. Doing what? To pawn it off on astrology. You do? Yeah, 100%. 100%. <laughs> but don't you think that creates us an environment where people become victims, right? I think so. And I think that most of the time when you see that being done negatively, it's when people have a very superficial understanding of astrology and they use it yeah. to stereotype people. Oh, he just did that because he's a Scorpio. And yeah. that can be very minimizing. But I think that there can be a healthy sense of passing things off of, you know, this is the I see experience what you're saying. that I'm like not, not putting so much pressure on yourself. Yeah. And like, you know, taking it off the ego a little bit of, you didn't necessarily create this problem right. for yourself. It's something you're having to work through, but you know, there's, you know, a lot of people within spirituality believe that your soul chose these things mm-hmm. to walk through. And I don't know if that's true, but I am a pragmatist and I think that's a very freeing and liberating way to look at your life as though, you know, my soul wanted me to experience this thing. Yeah. And it's not my fault. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I've I've thought a lot about that idea too. And I totally think there's something to it, right? That like, one interesting idea I heard was this idea that like, we're we're almost like a an, a limb of a multi-dimensional being, right? And like our soul probably exists permanently at a fifth dimension or you know higher dimension that we can't even begin to wrap our heads around, but yeah. you know, whatever. And at the fifth dimensional level, it has that free will to choose what we experience in this reality, but then it actually manifests in this life and we, you know, get to experience it. Yeah. I think that makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> So you talked about, you know, you, you mentioned Saturn as your example earlier, your, your company name is Kronos Astrology. I mean, talk about, 
the planet Saturn? What is maybe some of the stereotypes of Saturn? And why did you decide to pick it as your name? Yeah, I picked Saturn because it's the scariest planet. And why is that? Saturn can represent the archetype of fear. Mm. The, the outer limit. Whenever the, the ancients developed astrology, Saturn was the farthest planet they could see. Mm. So Saturn was the boundary. Mm. And with the boundary comes the end, the death. Saturn's the grim reaper mm. and psychologically Saturn's our fear and skepticism and doubt. And it's also our greatest challenges, greatest growth, our hardest fought battles and our wisdom mm -hmm. is Saturn. And I have always been attracted to the struggle and the, the insight and the wisdom that can come from the more difficult parts of life. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to this idea of alchemy, I think that there's something so empowering about alchemizing even the darkest things that we've had to walk mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. And that's why I chose to have my business under the, the name of Saturn, because I would like to be an instrument or a guide in that process for people. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you heard of David Icke by chance? Mm, yeah. He's, uh, he's kind of like, he's been like a well-known conspiracy theorist, but like very far off the deep end where even like conspiracy theorists are like, whoa, dude, like you're wild. <laughs> but you know, anyways, like as more stuff comes to light, you keep people being like, maybe he's not so crazy. <laughs> but anyway, this idea I've seen from him is that what Saturn actually represents is like some sort of, some sort of prison almost, if you yeah. will. And like, have you heard like the archons? Have you heard mm -hmm. that idea before? That it could be like some dark archontic force at some point, you know, came to our planet, right? Or specifically targeted the human soul and we're kind of trapped in this samsara cycle. Mm -hmm. And sat that Saturn is somehow controlling and then the process of enlightenment is actually like how the soul releases from that, that cycle. I'm curious if yeah. you've heard any of these ideas or what you think any of that. Yeah, it brings to mind this thought that I got to a couple years back when I was like, oh, because I was on this um, search for enlightenment uh -huh. journey. And I was uh -huh. like, I got to and I'm a perfectionist. And so I was like, I, I have to be perfect. Like, I have to be full enlightened. I was like me as a 25 year old, I'll probably figure it out in the next year or two. Yeah, yeah. And through my my studies. In school, philosophy, which, you know, if you take the time to sit with the philosophy books, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. But essentially, I came to, you know, enlightenment is this form of non-existence. And to, to exist, to be in human form is intrinsically unenlightened in a way. Interesting. And so... I was like, oh, like, yeah, I can totally be in this nirvana bliss connected with God, the divine state. Like people have gotten there before, I believe. Yeah. But why would I want to? Because as soon as I die, I'm there. You, so you're saying that you think upon death, you become enlightened anyway. So you'd yes. rather, you know, just enjoy 
your life on planet Earth yes. in the human physiological state. A hundred percent. Interesting. I, I I can agree with that. I see. I see where you're going with that. I think uh, the counter argument, or maybe this is a kind of pro <laughs> being in this kind of wheel, is that I think the argument is that to actually be able to break that never-ending cycle of life and death and go on to the next conscious experience, whatever that may be, you have to achieve enlightenment while on Earth. Yeah, but. I like life. I like my life. Well, I, I don't think becoming enlightened means you like your your human experience any less. Have you heard the idea of like experiencing 200% of life? 200%? Yeah, no. like you're 100% in the physical reality and you're 100% uh-huh. in the spiritual reality yeah. at all times. Well, I guess like what I mean is I wouldn't mind doing another life. Like, Fair enough. It sounds yeah. fun and interesting to me. Like, I, I guess I don't, I'm curious what people want out of eternal bliss, if that's what it is. Like, what's in it for, for us? Eternal bliss. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds okay. I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know. You're into that kind of thing. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. No, I mean, hey, maybe that's just, uh, that's an interesting perspective you've got, you know, for sure. I like it. Um, well, and I'll offer a caveat to that as well. I do think that there's a sense of people that are enlightened are doing a service to humanity. And, you know, this whole idea of heaven on earth, bringing heaven to earth, bringing nirvana, bliss, transcendence can create some sort of freedom for people from the hell of life. Like life is also hell and suffering. Perception creates your reality. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I, and so people are certainly in very forms of hell in this, you know, yeah. reality. You can't deny that there's real suffering and, and horrible things going on. For sure. So I wouldn't fully give up the enlightenment project, but I am yeah. I'm okay with doing yeah. another life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I'm I'm chilling. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about, you know, I mentioned natal chart earlier. What is that? If if you're okay with it, you know, we can share our natal charts, you know, for I have like a PDF version that I attached to every episode. So Definitely. Okay, cool. Yeah, so maybe if you wouldn't mind explaining just, you know, what is a natal chart and when folks are looking at it, you know, what are kind of some of the key components they'll be seeing? Yeah. So a natal chart is a snapshot of the sky at the time of your birth. It tracks the position of every single planet, mathematical point, the sun, the moon, the rising, which if you've heard of the big three in astrology, that's the sun, moon, rising. And those are thought to be the three more important points. So that's one thing that you can take away from an astrology reading. If you don't remember everything is the sun, moon, and rising. And when you say sun, moon, and rising, you're specifically talking about how each person when they're born, those three things you just mentioned relate to specific constellations where they are in your natal chart. Is that right? Yeah, so the sun and the moon are the luminaries. The sun, everyone generally speaks about their sun sign. It's the most common. If you, it's very ego, right? It's very yeah. like top half of your natal chart, yep. right? Okay. Yeah, the, the sun is the ego, the essence, the identity. If you read your horoscope in the newspaper growing up, you read your sun sign. And it's how other people typically perceive you as well. Is that fair? Yeah, I think some people can present as they're rising as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say that people that know you really well see your moon really well too. Sure. But 
It makes sense. sense. The more you know somebody, the better you, you know, get all that. For sure. For sure. But yeah, at surface level, we've got the sun and rising is actually just the sign that was rising at the time of your birth over the horizon. So, and do you want to walk through kind of just how the houses work in the natal chart with that in mind? Yeah. So whatever sign was rising, that is house one for you. And that sets the motion of the rest of your chart. The signs will always stay in order. So for you as a Libra rising, Scorpio is next because Scorpio season comes after Libra season and so on and so forth. So if someone wasn't an Aries rising, their chart would be in true form because Aries is the first sign of the zodiac. It's the star Got spring. It. And yeah. so when you say true form, you're saying that you're, you were born basically with Aries in your first house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So for people who are Aries rising, they might see like a, a double down of certain themes. Yeah. And my understanding is correct. The zodiacal calendar is much more based on a, where the sun is shining through in a certain constellation and B, the it's set to the different changing of the seasons is that right like the solstices and the equinoxes right the changes yep yep okay so aries kicks off the year with spring equinox which would be what march 21st yes yep got it and that's the first day of aries each year yes yeah yeah and then taurus is next gemini so on and so forth and the the easiest way to learn astrology is through a study of the seasons and you can actually tell a lot about each sign from just thinking about what's happening in the weather and in society around that time of year so for example aries is spring and it's a got that initiatory energy aries is usually thought to be like a self-oriented sign that's me first and takes a a strong presence and that has that start of spring energy of like we're in a new season people start to get excited made it through the long the winter and so next is tourist season and that's the middle of spring and that's when the seeds have already been planted during airy season and now they're being worked over Taurus is the bull. Yeah, the earth Uh sign. So there's like a steadiness and a patience to Taurus. And that comes from that planting season. Yeah. And working the ground over, seeing that through. And then Gemini is a mutable sign. So it's the changing of the seasons. We're moving from spring into summer. So Gemini has two qualities to it. It's spring, but it's also summer, like in like a lion, not like a lamb. And that's why Gemini has that duality and it's the twins. twins? Yeah. 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 So yeah, you can tell and so on and so forth for the whole, for the whole year, but you can tell a lot about a sign just from thinking about the season. That's really interesting. I never thought about it like that before, but that makes total sense. And then talk about the, um, the elements So there's four elements. There's fire, earth, air, and water. And those also go in order. So Aries is fire, Taurus is earth, Gemini is air, Cancer is water. And then it starts over with Leo as fire and so on. 
Interesting. Yeah. And then those elements, I mean, is that, does that represent what kind of like the ancient mystery schools thought like were the, the primary constituents of our, of our planet? Is it something like that? Yeah, they based the elements off what they thought the qualities of the planet were. Okay. For example, Saturn is thought to be very cold and very dry. And Saturn is the ruler of Capricorn, which is an Earth sign, and also Aquarius, which is an air sign. So it has that cold and dry quality to it. Huh. I mean, it's crazy. It's so deep. Like it's 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 hard to wrap your you know, mind around. And it makes sense because obviously like our, our solar system is so complex. And, you know, you talked about that, that idea of as above, so below. And is that, is that like a hermetic principle? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I was thinking about this too, before our conversation, like, cause I think, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts, but like, I think that astrology also is just as much about like the microscopic and what's happening on your cellular level. Do you right. A hundred percent. How do you think that, that impacts you. And I, I think about the, you know, just like for, and, and I, I know I'm sorry, going in like a million directions here. But let me ask you this. What would you, what would you lay out as like the straw man of the skeptics argument against mm. astrology? Mm. I don't know if I would say that there's a straw man necessarily as someone who leans skeptical. I think I resonate with some of the arguments against it. Yeah. But I think just for myself and from my experience as an astrologer, I think that people who see it as a belief system are missing out on the the validity of it as a yeah. tool because I've seen so many positive results, tangible results from working with it myself and in my life. And I know a lot of other people who it's really helped them find their path, find their purpose, yeah. tap into to who they are and what they want from life. And so I'm not sure that it needs to be argued against in the way that it is all the time. But, it, you know, if someone's walking around saying it's a science and, yeah. you know, it's got factual uh, empirical evidence for it, I think it's okay to disagree with that. I hope that there will be more studies in the future that can uh-huh. tap into those things. They, they've done a few, but there's not that many people who are astrologers who care to uh, get empirical evidence. Yeah. There's kind of a, a gap there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe one day yeah. there'll be more interest in that. Yeah. I mean, so I guess, is it fair to say that it's really mainly coming from a place of ignorance, right? Where they just dismiss it out of hand without taking the time to understand the, you know, the, the art behind it. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a sense that not everyone wants to believe in magic and not everyone wants to suspend disbelief to have fun with something. And, And that's totally fine. But I think that anyone who is willing to do that and has an openness about it, it gets pretty mind blowing pretty quick. For sure. For sure. I mean, as I've like been thinking more about astrology and the importance of like the natal chart, like for me, it's like, okay, where, where your soul manifests in, in space and time drives what type of like behaviors and experiences you're more inclined to have on this planet. Now, do you think that your time of conception factors into it at all? Yeah, I definitely do. I think 
So one way to think about this is when you do you write songs. I'm starting to maybe fuck around with it. Yeah, bit. yeah. Yeah. When you write a song, there's so much that goes into the song that makes the song what it is, and you know, your whole life is in the song in some sense. Your experiences, certain experiences, the time up until that point is in that song in some way. Also, uh-huh. the room that you're in, the temperature of the room, how you're relating to the people in your life, what you're thinking about, where what you're thinking about came from. All of that is embedded into the moment and into the thing that you create out of that moment. And I feel like it's the same for human life. Like everything that your mom went through up into the point of having you. And, you know, I would think where it's easy to fathom that concept when it comes to genetics and trauma and inherited things. And we inherit the passage of time too. Totally. And I think that again, kind of challenges the materialistic paradigm, what you're saying of, you know, just what's it called? Uh, evolution by genetic mutation right where like your experiences don't have any effect on the cellular level and you know evolution takes thousands and thousands and millions of years and like she think that's bullshit i think it's just we would sort of you know false bill of goods to prevent people from you know really trying to improve as much as they're able to yeah definitely i was looking at your natal chart before you got here and i realized you know Pretty much immediately that I have no idea what I'm looking at, <laughs> but like I did remember some of the stuff you taught me. And so I'm very uh-huh. curious. So as I look at like, so for folks who haven't ever seen a natal chart, by the way, what it looks like is it's 12 houses that represent what the sky looked like at the time and place where you were born. Um, you've got 12 houses, which represent the 12 signs of the, of the Zodiac. The 12 signs of the Zodiac are the constellations that the earth sees throughout what's known as like the great year, right? The procession of the equinox, which is something like 25,000, some hundred, some hundred years. And so the Zodiac has grain gates of significance because that's, those are the constellations that are on the horizon throughout the year um, of the earth. Am I, am I saying things correctly? Yeah. Generally? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, all that's to say, you know, if I'm understanding again correctly, that when you are born, you can see where all the planetary bodies are in relation to one another and where they were on the horizon for where you were born. The six constellations above the horizon are typically the houses that are more external facing and and how others perceive you. The six that are below the horizon are more about how you are internally and typically where you have more planetary bodies in a specific house, that house, that constellation has more of a significant impact on your personality. Is that fair? Yep. And if it sounds confusing, it definitely is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it takes a while to, to really pick up on it. Yeah. And on that note, we tried to do this interview like a year ago and I realized I just did not know shit about astrology. So thankfully, Kate recommended a book, Cosmos and Psyche, for anyone who wants to get real deep into it. And uh, yeah, much better prepared this time. Still don't know shit. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very impressed. Thank you. So with all that said, your third house and your ninth house have a lot of activity. Your third house is below the horizon your ninth is above so tell me about what you know you think this this means yeah so the third house is the local environment 
third house is your community. It's thinking, communication, siblings. The third house, a lot of times when you study the houses, you're like, how do these topics all go together? Like, what does siblings have to do with short-term trips? And there's a lot of theory behind why each house has what it has. But the third house is everything that is at arm's length from you. The first house is you. The second house is what you have, what you accumulate. And then third house is kind of those tertiary things. And I do have quite a few planets there. And I've always been a huge local environment girl. I've always tried to develop communities around me and it's in the sign of Scorpio. So if you know anything about Scorpio, I'm definitely intense about developing those those secondhand things. And, you know, just generally I go on like a, a trip every weekend. So I guess that that is a, as a manifestation of that third house as well. Interesting. And so then when you say Scorpio is a third house, so I look at it, that's a Scorpio sign. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then the third house is whatever is to the left of it. So here's Sagittarius. Oh, that's, that's mine. Yeah. <laughs> so Scorpio and then North Node Scorpio, North Node Scorpio, Venus Scorpio, Jupiter Scorpio, Pluto Scorpio. Yep. Okay. So then, um, when you're saying North Node, what does that mean? So the North Nodes are an evolutionary astrology thing where the North Node is thought to be what your soul is evolving towards, your transformational mm-hmm. energy. South Node is something that you come in with that's more abundant to you, more comfortable. And North Node is that uncomfortable place of mm. change. And so then North Node is pointing up or how is that right or no? So North Node for me is in Scorpio. So that would mean that I'm moving towards that Scorpionic energy. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are your sun rising and moon signs? So my sun is in the sign of Libra, Uh which is your rising, right? Yeah, exactly. And my moon. And your moon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Double Libra. Yeah, exactly. Everyone watch out. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, I know that you know. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. I know as a Libra. But yeah, Libra sun, Virgo rising, and Taurus moon. Okay, interesting. And so what do those various things mean? So the sun in the sign of Libra, Libra is the scales of justice. Libras have this search for balance inherent to their life path in some way. Mm. The sun can also represent purpose. So there can be some sense of purpose with the the sign that your sun is in. It can be linked to soul purpose in mm. a way. So for you... That's a sun sign you said? Yeah. Uh-huh. So for you as a Sagittarius, uh-huh. your essence is Sagittarius, but also there's something in that of, you know, we're born to travel the world uh-huh. and to seek knowledge and expansion and to share that message with people. Totally. Yeah. Evangelize. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the rising sign is thought to be your orientation, how you present yourself. And it's also your, your path of ascension. So, okay. It's like the sun is what's going on and then the rising is the path. So for me, I'm on the Virgo path. Virgo 
is the virgin and is related to harvest time and karma and gathering of information, collecting information and putting it together. Yeah. Yeah. And then the moon? The moon is thought to be your inner emotional world, who you are at your core, how you received care and nurture in childhood. It's a planet related to the mother, sister, feminine, the divine feminine. The moon is also how you show care and love for others too. Mm -hmm. What was it? How you show care and love? The moon. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think that when people get lost in like the Maya of illusion of reality Mm -hmm. that it's because they are not in touch with their rising energy? Like have they, or have they just missed their Dharma? Like am I mixing concepts there? You think? Yeah. And I like it. It's interesting. I think that there there could be something with that. I don't know if I would say it's necessarily losing touch of the rising, uh-huh. but maybe losing touch of the alchemy. Interesting. The alchemization of that rising. So I'll give you an example with Virgo. So yeah. Virgo, since it is that harvest time of year, you know, they were going over the fields. They're saying this worked, this didn't work. It's a very judgmental time of year. And that's why it has to do with like judgment day. Yeah. And so when I'm not in my best expression of that Virgo energy, I'm just very self-critical and overly analytical and anxious and, you know, a hypochondriac and all of the the Virgo things. Mm. But when I'm in a, in a better manifestation of that energy, it's a very selective energy of you know, knowing the best path forward because it's like you're taking into account what has happened, what you've done, and then figuring out, you know, how to actually do better and make things better. And the other archetype of Virgo is the humanitarian and someone who's very mission driven and gives Mm -hmm. back to people Mm -hmm. because they know exactly how to give back to people. Yeah. Interesting. So then tell me about your ninth house. The ninth house is the philosophy house. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And my moon's there. So definitely that's wherever your moon is, is it's an area that feels very comfortable. It feels like calm. There can be a huge draw to, to doing those things. And it's also the house of publication. Yeah. It's the house of big ideas, worldview, culture, foreign travel, foreign lands. It's also the house where it's most on display. And that's why it has to do with oh, publishing because it's pretty high in the sky. Yeah. Interesting. And I had a lot in my 10th house. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So that would shift the focus. My chart's a little more ideological and yours is a little bit more rooted in a tangible career, Interesting. which I think knowing both of our paths makes sense. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's funny. Um, so you talk about publication and you just submitted a proposal for your thesis. So tell us a little bit more about what you're working on. 
Yeah, so I'm in the dissertation writing process, and it's slow going, but I am collecting research on integration, mm-hmm. which you know, is a buzzword with psychedelic experiences or non-ordinary states of consciousness, peak spiritual experiences. Yeah. Integration gets tacked on of, okay, well, what are you going to do when you're out of that experience? Like, how are you going to work what you learned or what you felt into your life so that you experience a long-lasting change? And, you know, I think that there's a sense that people, if they skip out on the integration work, which I think some just happens naturally, no matter what. Sure. But I think that there's like a a range and a lot that you can potentially harness from those experiences. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of research out there right now on you know, what, what do you, what do we mean? Integration? Like what actually can we do? And, you know, people are like, Oh, you can journal, you can go to therapy, you can go for a walk and think about your experience. And I think those are all valid, but I'm also curious about like, what else, what else could we do to, to change our lives with these experiences? Yeah. So what are some ideas you have? How are you thinking about, you know, going out and researching this topic? Yeah. So I have a theory. I have a theory that astrology could be a useful tool. I love it. Yeah. Because of the the storytelling essentially and the narrative work of, I think a lot of what needs to change. And this is what I need to to go into with the research for the actual science and neurobiology with this. But I think that part of the, the issue is people experience a narrative in those altered states of consciousness that goes outside of their, their normal storyline about their life. But then they're thrown back into their old storyline and you know how life is. It just, it wears you out and beats you up and reiterates the storyline at times. And yeah, yeah. You go right back to it. And then think a lot of people feel like even more discouraged at times. And that's something that I really want to advocate for transparency about is, you know, it's not a magic bullet where you can have the experience and then all of a sudden life gets better and easier. I think it could happen. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, But I think that there, there's a disconnect there when, your narrative changes for four hours and then there's no way to change totally. the narrative. And I think that's also part and parcel of this, the whole big pharma approach to healthcare that we've been sold, right? right. Take a pill and then everything's all better. And then, you know, until you just need to pay us for your next bill. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's interesting to see what will happen on that front with the decriminalization and potential legalization yeah. of, of these substances, because I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's up for FDA trials and, you know, if the FDA approves it, if people can get access to, to these things via their insurance, like it's just a whole, it's a whole nother ball game when it comes to like, how do we talk about these things? 
you know, how do we take them and what setting and, you know, are people like equipped to walk people through what potentially is released from their unconscious during these experiences? (laughs) If it's a, a pill situation where it's like, okay, here is the remedy for your illness. Hope it works. Like what's going to happen. Yeah. Interesting. I love the idea. I mean, I, I funny enough, I've thought of like doing a similar thing for my final paper for my program, not, not the exact same, but very similar approach. Right. So my school, and it's interesting. So my school is Myrish international. And we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. It's very rooted in ancient Vedic tradition of India, you know, it's, it's like recognized as the longest unbroken tradition by the UN and shit like that. So like, I understand that they're very reluctant to some of these new technologies and things that are coming out and, and, you know, the idea that, you know, psychedelics could be useful in exploration of consciousness. But that said, I, you know, I think that you look outside of the war on drugs era, it's really, they have been used as effective tools for exploring higher states of consciousness by cultures all around the world for all of human civilization. So I think we'd be fools to throw the baby out of the bathwater. So anyway, that's my long winded way of saying what I really want to do at some point is, is do a a study that shows, you know, if you practice, if you're a control group, you don't do meditation or psychedelics. If you do six months of transcendental meditation twice daily, no psychedelics, you do six months and you start off the six months also on a microdose protocol, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what is the difference there? And I think that, you know, you might see that your kind of consciousness enlivenment is faster and that those types of modalities are very helpful and kind of integrative to your point. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love the sound of that. I think one thing that I've picked up from my research is the concept that psychedelics can act as uh, non-specific amplifiers. So what's already going on in the psyche can be amplified. And I think that that makes that study very interesting because, and I've, I've experienced this too of, you know, whatever's going on in your mind, like if you've put yourself in this, more transcendent state and then you have an amplification of that yeah completely different than you know if you're just in a different place in time yeah can i tell you about a specific trip that yeah i'd love to hear it (laughs) (laughs) all right so this happened a couple months ago and i was allegedly working with lsd and um have you ever heard of the monroe institute no It's pretty wild shit. I'll send you some info on it. But basically, it's like a research like clinic where they've been working on kind of like, I guess you call it traditionally like psychic abilities, right? Like, oh, yes, I have heard of this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the remote viewing gets me crazy. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. So I've worked with that before and like had a couple out of body experiences that have been really powerful. And so I started to try it while I was on during this trip and it was way too powerful. I was like, well, I, I kind of like panicked, right? As this is happening, I, was like, I, I don't think I should do that. But then instead I listened to the Vedic recitations. Have you ever heard? Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's basically like it's pandits from India reciting Sanskrit, but the essence of what the Vedas are, which is like the fundamentals of the Vedic philosophy are not 
literature in the way that we think of it. It's actually like the sound, the primordial sound vibrations of the cosmos. And so the idea is that when you're hearing the, the Sanskrit of the Vedas read in the right cadence at the right tempo, you're enlivening the like primal source of, of who you are. Cause to your point about as above, so below yes. we are all this kind of repeating pattern of the, of the Veda. Right. So anyway, so I listened to the Rick Veda recitations for a couple hours and it was like, it was like so deep, you know, it was like, a, and I'd had pretty profound experiences working with the recitations before just, you know, without psychedelics, but like this time it was like, I, I could, I could, I understood the vibrations of natural law because I became the vibrations of natural law. Yeah. And so what a good Tuesday night. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, so that was like the first couple hours of my trip. And then after that, I had just like a really just kind of profound download that I don't think I would have, you know, been in that state of mind for, you know, if I hadn't been doing both of those modalities together, I think, I don't know, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe the acid alone, like I could have gotten to a similar state, but I definitely think that the two together, like, had me in a in a very kind of open and novel experience position. Yes, for sure. And I think part of synchronicity is finding that narrative thread through your experiences of I learned that at the perfect time. I experienced that at the perfect yeah. time. And then, you know, it gets a little manic, but it's, you, know, you can really easily start to feel as though everything is is making sense in an yeah. eerie way. It is. And I know what you mean when just synchronicity becomes a day of life. Yeah. Like, oh, weird. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's cool. Yeah. I've definitely had experiences in, in altered states where I will like understand like concepts. Like I had an experience of Maya where I was like, oh, I completely understand that. And I was with my friend Maya and <laughs> it just all made, made perfect sense yeah. to me in that moment. And it's like, of course, like, of course, like here I am with Maya and, you know, Maya is all around us. Right, right. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> Do you want to touch a little bit more on what that concept of Maya is? Yeah, I think you hit on it earlier with Maya being this illusion. And I think when you have some semblance of consciousness and the the unity that is consciousness, it really highlights how much we're all pretending. Like I'm pretending to be Kate and you're pretending to be Jordan mm. and we're having this conversation, but really we're the same person mm -hmm. and <laughs> I might so, be losing some people here <laughs> getting a little, a little trippy, but I think, you know, and it, when we're pretending, it's really easy to forget how reasonable that is, that this is all a game of pretend. Mm -hmm. Funny. Have you had an experience that you consider like a dark night of the soul? Yes. It's been seven years now. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> I was actually just thinking about this because I, you know, there's a, a myriad of different theories on how long a dark night of the soul lasts. And when mm. I had first heard of it, I was like, oh, it's, it's like a, four month thing. Yeah. And I, I was like, I know when that was for me, it was those four months. And then 
the more different things that you read about it, you're like, yeah. okay, this is kind of a, a long haul. Sure. But yeah, I feel like I've been in one for, for a while now. Yeah. And I'm just coming up on my Saturn return. I'm in my Saturn return. Yeah. And my hope is that it kind of goes out with a bang with the Saturn situation. Yeah. But I, I do like the idea of a dark night of the soul. I think you see it in a lot of different cultures, this, Descent to the Underworld. And I actually like saying Descent to the Underworld more than Dark Knight of the Soul because it has a sense of adventure to it. Uh So I think I've been on a descent to the Underworld. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So what can you get into any specifics about that descent? I think that there's something that I would call awareness hell. And it's when you become aware of your life and it becomes hell because you are suddenly awake to things that have been happening for years. And there's so much grief with that too, of time lost when, you know, you weren't awake or when you were being affected by things so heavily with no awareness, but you're not quite, you don't have enough resources to move out from just being aware. And I think we touched on that a little bit earlier. It's like you being aware is a step. It's maybe the first step in some senses, but it's not the full thing. And I think that part of a a dark night of the soul is like, okay, like I know all these things are going on and like, I don't know how to fix them Mm. or I do know how to fix them, but it's going to take me five years because Things are are like that. They take time to yeah. to grow and develop, and you can't think one way for twenty five years of your life, and then suddenly flip a switch and start thinking right. another way because there's neural pathways in your brain that have to be rewired, and it takes an awareness of biology. And I mean, I think that there are. I personally do believe in miracles, and I do think that things can change mysteriously and suddenly. But there's a lot uh, in between that is work, hard work. Yeah. What did the question start with? I think that you asked me a personal question and I completely rewrote okay, it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. No, no, that's okay. I appreciate that. Um, it's, it's the Scorpio third house. It's yeah, very secretive. No, no, it's totally cool. You don't want to share the worst experience of your life. Yeah. So, so, um, Maybe so, the next time we have yeah, it. For sure. So talk to me about um, the idea of an archetypal transition. Mm. Can you say more? Yeah. So it's it, maybe I'm I'm misusing the term, but it's it's kind of the idea that Richard Tarnas explored a lot in Cosmos mm-hmm. and Psyche of just like how when you see a transit of two planetary bodies, that's when like the effects are amplified so like he talks a lot about like the uranus neptune transits yes. the neptune pluto transits the uranus pluto transits focus a lot more on like the outer planets which i thought was right. interesting yeah 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 my school definitely are true heads for the outer planets they really uh, they kind of dis- disavow science a little bit like yeah because there's less academic research to back up sign correspondences yeah but interesting he's done a lot of work as like a historian to exactly pin down what mathematical alignments were happening between planets and so that's thought to be a more academic expression of astrology is just yeah. talking about the outer planets 
Interesting. So your point, I guess, is more, it's like, it's almost more directional, longer term. So it's harder to say like, I don't know, I guess it's just harder to say like with any type of accuracy or not, not harder, but just less chance that it's just happening due to chance, I guess. Yeah. There's more up for interpretation with okay. that. I yeah. think when you're just like, oh, it's a Uranus-Pluto transit, you know, we have our categorical manifestations of Uranus yeah, yeah. and then Pluto and then it's the 60s and you're like, obviously, like, obviously it's Uranus and Pluto squaring off here. And and explain to me again and the listeners what why that was obvious. The 60s was Uranus and Pluto. And Uranus, is that how you say it, Uranus? I usually say that. Uh-huh. Um, is it because you always say anus? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you busted me. Okay. It's hard to like keep people's attention for an academic discussion. Yeah. <laughs> when you just keep saying anus. <laughs> so yeah, Uranus is the fancy version. Okay, got it. Yeah. So Uranus Pluto. Yeah, Uranus Pluto. So Uranus is related to the myth of Prometheus. Uh-huh. Who I resonate with Prometheus. Yeah, a lot, for sure. yeah. We should see what Uranus is yeah, yeah. doing in your chart. But yeah, Uranus stole the fire from the gods and brought it to the people. So he is the rebel and the change maker and the challenge to the system. And the constellation names the gods, they are based off of the Roman gods. Is that correct? No. So yeah, you have that prominent Uranus and it's called a stellium. Which is that symbol for Uranus? It's the circle. The X with the, the black X. It's the most complicated symbol. So it's okay. got the circle and then the line and then the two lines. Oh, on the I side. see it. Yeah, like the bluish one, blue yes. bubbly. Okay, yeah. got it. Interesting. Um, so for me, it's in the fourth house. It's in the fourth house of which, which constellation is that? This Capricorn. Capricorn. Yeah. Okay. And you have it in this Capricorn pileup, which they call a stellium because you have your lot of fortune there, you have Uranus there, you have Neptune there, Saturn there, the IC, which is the bottom of the chart, and then Mercury there. So it ends up being a lot of Capricorn. And what is the IC? What is that? It is the most foundational part of the chart, the very bottom. Like my South Star on the South Pole? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Like where you came from. Yeah. And then the first one you said was something about fortune? The lot of fortune. What is that? A lot of fortune is is thought to be something that's been faded to you in some way. Huh. So just glancing at your chart, it feels like you came into this life with a lot, a lot of Capricorn. And, and remind me, talk about what is Capricorn? Capricorn is the seagoat. So Seagoat. yeah, yeah, <laughs> one of the the most fun creatures. But well, it also, it makes sense that I would have a lot of Sagittarius and Capricorn because I am very into like the mythical like yes. fantasy creatures. Yes, yeah, it's definitely mythical beasts and beings yeah. energy and philosophy i most it's a little bit more serious though is that right sag is less serious Uh and but capricorn's very serious yeah yeah, Yeah. and that makes sense because i definitely do fluctuate between those two polarities Mm -hmm. yeah because you do have so much capricorn and mercury which is a personal planet is in capricorn so like you have the the spirit of a sagittarius and like the libra but your mind has that capricorn bent Uh to it 
of like, what are the facts? What is the scaffolding? How do the parts fit together? It's interesting. Huh. No, it makes sense. And I mean, I think, you know, even having Saturn in Capricorn makes sense to me because, you know, I've, I've explored a lot of like darker topics of reality on this show. Right. And I think it's, it's, a, it's, you know, generally subject matter that a lot of folks don't want to touch, but I think it's, you know, important kind of, as we talk about that whole duality of, just, mm-hmm. you know, recognizing the good and the bad that like, the path to evolution is through universal wisdom. Right. Yeah. It's very Capricorn. Very, <laughs> very Saturnian. <laughs> That's funny. The old wise man <laughs> of consciousness. <laughs> That's funny. And then what is uh, Mercury energy associated with? So Mercury is Hermes, who is the messenger I'm of the gods. Super love Hermes. Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. And he was able to go between worlds. And so that's why Mercury has the messenger archetype. It also has the trickster archetype and that feeling of duality playing with words. Mm. Mercury is, I would relate Mercury to Maya. Mercury and Neptune. Neptune is the, the dreamy, spiritual lost in the ocean planet yeah Yeah. interesting so i'm glad you bring up Hermes, and i actually had a question for you about that i heard and i think he's often called Hermes like trismegistus something like that which means like the thrice greatest Mm -hmm. and i've heard a few ideas for why it's the thrice greatest but one that was pretty cool was like because he was known to be the master of three sacred sciences Mm -hmm. those being astrology alchemy and theo- theology i think it's mm. is how you pronounce it and it's the study of the gods mm-hmm. but it's gods with a little g and so i think that you know that probably for me when i think about god with a little g i think that represents any entity be they human or extraterrestrial or multi-dimensional that has reached a state of enlightenment or similar kind of physiological development and they're able to naturally kind of understand the dynamics of natural law. Mm, mm-hmm. And so I think like, as you think about like back to Atlantis, like I think there are probably both humans who have reached that state, but also non-human, you know, species that were here kind of interacting mm. both those levels. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's, that's all just to say that, that, that I think those are three very fascinating fields of inquiry. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, Three definitely makes sense for Mercury. Three's like a creative number. The third way, that's all very mercurial. Yeah. It's also like the third planet because it's the sun, the moon, and then Mercury. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. The yeah. sun, the moon, and then Mercury. Yeah. So in astrology, the sun and moon are both planets. Sun and moon. But then, but Mercury, I mean, the order you're just saying doesn't make sense though. Mm-hmm. Because sun, moon, what about Venus? Four. Is after the moon? Sun, moon, Mercury, Venus. Sun, moon, Mercury, Venus. Okay, so moon is second. Interesting. Yeah. So sun is first, moon is second. Yeah, because I guess they're kind of more kind of independent. They're not really like the other planets, both of those bodies. Yeah, the luminaries. Yeah. Have you heard the idea that the moon is artificial? Oh, like it's a fake moon or? Well, I've heard a couple (laughs) ideas. I think that there are, one idea is that there's like a base on the inside of it that has been used by various species throughout history. Another is that the entire thing is like a 
fake Death Star kind of thing that was put there by the same archonic forces or whatever at some point in mm-hmm. our history. I don't know. Interesting. It's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I want to believe in the reality of the moon. Yeah. I want to believe in her purity. For sure. Because, you know, she's like connected to the the tides and, you know, yeah. the divine feminine. And it's like, you know, you're going to say that's that. artificial. I do think that there's a lot of, you know, real purity to the moon. But I do think there's also for sure some bases and shit going on on the moon. Like there's there's a lot of shenanigans that have been oh, I bet. currently going on on the moon. There's no way that we were only there. You know, exactly. We just were like, yeah. And then we're like, know, forget it. Because our... our military industrial complex is really well known for like going to a place and then saying, yeah, that's, that's it. We're good. We're going to mm-hmm. leave and not, you know, be here forever for the rest of time. Yeah. <laughs> Sidebar. Did you see the, uh, quote unquote alien they found in Mexico? Yeah. 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 I haven't like gotten a chance to actually watch the like thing, but it's crazy. Yeah. It was, it was sending me because I mean, it, it looks exactly like ET. Really? Yeah. Wild. Like, I think they were watching E.T. when they modeled that alien. (laughs) I mean, I don't doubt it. I mean, Spielberg is a, you know, has always been known to be very interested in the extraterrestrial phenomenon, but also I think the ties of, you know, what's really going on on the inside of the military industrial complex and, you know, kind of what what Hollywood has portrayed to us is, mm-hmm. has always been very intertwined. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But have you heard of the idea of, like, predictive programming? No. It's kind of, like, based on the whole idea of, like, you know, you manifest the yes, reality that yeah. you're thinking about and, you know, bad guys have figured that out, too. So, they, yeah. you know, they put forward movies that have aliens that are very exactly what they may look like in the future, but they yeah. always do so in a way that we have to prepare for war and these guys are going to kill us. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like laying the foundations for a narrative that is going to play out in the future. Yeah, totally. I actually, I was just thinking of this article I read once on the negative psychological effects of apocalyptic literature. Interesting. And it's that same, in that same vein of, you know, if there's any, if you have any semblance of that, we do create our own reality. Yeah, yeah. Apocalyptic literature isn't, great in movies because you know it's we're we're prepping we're we're worried (laughs) yeah (laughs) there might be zombies yeah there might be zombies because we think them into existence yeah right totally (laughs) it's so funny so what do you think about extraterrestrials right thinking about the stars as much as you do you gotta gotta give it some thought right yeah i feel like i there's this old saying that uh, an astrologer who doesn't actually look at the stars as just a mathematician oh that's and, funny yeah i feel like sometimes i go mathematician mode and i am not like out there with the telescope yeah but it's always a, yeah yeah <laughs> I, I need to be up on like the alien drama too i think mm. as an astrologer <laughs> yeah i mean it's all coming out it's crazy we're at a wild time to be alive for yeah sure. yeah i'm excited yeah um, have you heard of close encounters of the fifth kind protocols Yes. All right. Well, if you ever want to go, it's a, yeah. it's, it's a wild time. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah I'm in. I am in. All I right. think, yeah, there's a, an astrological transit that's pretty big. People have been anticipating for a while. Pluto, which is a slow-moving planet, it takes around 20 years to shift signs, has been in the sign of Capricorn, which, again, as we said, is ruled by Saturn. So very rooted in tradition and boundaries and limitations. Hmm. 
but it's about to move into Aquarius, which is still Saturn ruled. But if you know anything about Aquarius, Aquarius is weird. Aquarius is out there. Aquarius is technology and aliens. You remember that old meme? It's like the aliens meme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the Aquarius. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Pluto dipped into Aquarius back in March and we got that hit. And there was all these AI drops. Apple dropped their Vision Pro. Mm. Then it went back into Capricorn. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, Vision Pro is not available. Like they're not even releasing like that's dev crazy. kits. But that's so wild. It's going to move back this spring. We're going to get that full shift into Aquarius. And, and you know, we're kind of titrating right now between Capricorn and Aquarius. But I think things are about to get really weird. I think so, too. I mean, I feel like we're at this major breaking point or tipping point in the evolution of humanity and, you know, the age we're living in, which is very exciting. But, yeah, to your point, it's going to get super weird. I mean, I think it already has, right? You look at just what's happened in the last, you know, seven years or so, like none of it people would have predicted. And, but I'm excited about it because like, I believe in the idea of like <clears throat> time being cyclical and us being involved in this kind of yuga cycle. And we're just kind of coming out of this low point in consciousness. And we're about to experience a golden age that just kind of helps us remember how beautiful and amazing this experience is and always has been Mm -hmm. yeah i hope so i hope so (laughs) and i think you know i i like that you're thinking that way and i think that the more that we can evangelize uh, uh, an optimism about the future while still giving suffering its due and acknowledgement uh the more that we can feel a sense of empowerment of you know what if like we actually could make things better and i think that that is something that the the united states government has tried to take away from its citizens is that sense of of optimism and empowerment that we have any semblance of control in our lives totally and that's what i yeah i hope that the there's a resistance that get built up to that idea mm-hmm. like even ideologically that yeah. you know no they don't control us yeah i really hope that we we see some change first in thought and then in action over the next few years yeah where do you think you know where would you like to see that change most imminently mm, like probably taxes mm-hmm. i think it's just criminal honestly it's nonsense it is. Yeah. I, I had this whole kick where I was like, I'm going to take on the tax code. And that yeah. lasted a month. And <laughs> I was like calling my friends who are in government and they're like, and they were essentially like, this project is just so unsexy. Like <laughs> you're not going to get any but traction. Because you get to keep your money. It's so funny you yeah. say this because I saw a documentary or, or an interview or something the other day that was talking about how like, the entire foundations of the IRS are unconstitutional. Yeah. I totally agree with. But they make it so hard to read the code and like yeah. to actually, I mean, they purposely like disable us from standing it's up to the tax seat. code. It yeah, yeah, it is. 
It's crazy. That's funny. So a another question for you. Like, so what is kind of like the history of astrology? Like what where does it come from? And is there, you know, there's like tropical versus Vedic? Is well, that right? are you gonna ask me this this far into the podcast? Uh, <laughs> it's such a huge question. I didn't know it was that huge. Yeah. I uh, mean, and there there's debate too. I think most people land on ancient Mesopotamia. Yeah. And then, you know, branching into East and West during like the Hellenistic era. Uh And then, you know, it it was booming up until, you know, Middle Ages. There was a divorce due to like the budding Puritanism. And interesting. Yeah. The church disavowed and, you know, the whole Galileo situation. And then kind of got thrown to the occult. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. Did Galileo himself, do you know, believe in astrology? I think so. Yeah. Uh He was pretty focused on the geometry. I think that took most of his time is like the concentric spheres and figuring out the way that the, the planets moved. Yeah. But they definitely were casting charts around that time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring up the occult, right? Because I think as I've studied it as, as well, I think that, you know, they've gotten very good up to and including present day, convincing the planet that things like astrology and alchemy are nonsense and silliness because then they get to preserve that sacred knowledge for themselves. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, there, you know, there is like beliefs circulating that all the rich and powerful people do use astrology. I've heard that too, and- totally. The saying, you know, that millionaires don't use astrology, but billionaires do. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that, but that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, I think well, that's I got, JP Morgan. I got my business partners in astrology reading with you last year for Christmas. So I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good for business. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I mean, it's it's interesting. You got, I mean, I, I don't remember, you know, or I don't know if you remember those readings because they were kind of long ago, but I'm just curious, like, is it funny getting to see? all three of our personalities. Yeah. Yeah. I actually do remember those readings because y'all are a creative group. For sure. And very different. Yeah. 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 Thankfully we would kill each other if we were all the same. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about the Hellenistic age. Oh yeah. And then it kind of got relegated to the occult. Oh yeah. And that's where we left. It was, was it it got relegated to the occult. Stayed at the occult for a while, lost cred in academia as most spiritual things did mysticism and then had a bit of a renaissance in the sixties, but still um, kitschy and, you know, is experiencing another boom now. Yeah. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. So this kind of was like the last main big topic I wanted to make sure to cover with you because we started talking earlier about, you know, the natal chart and everything at your birth, but you know, astrology is obviously a dynamic thing, you know, and it's about time on a, you know, ongoing basis, just as much as about, you know, when you were born and all of that. So I guess that's all to say, like, how do you think about time in relation to our present astrological alignment and where, you know, we kind of are going to see big archetype or big planetary transitions in the near future. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. That Pluto and Aquarius, that is going to be a huge transition, I think next year. And we're dealing with Neptune as well. Neptune is in Pisces and 
I think that one thing that we are going to have to really battle through is uh, this this idea of what's real and what's not real. Interesting. You know, with the artificial imaging, they're able to create videos of people saying things that they didn't say and doing things that they didn't do. And, you know, how does that affect the court of law and all these things that we haven't previously had to deal with as much, you know, and, you know, we've been, it's been upcoming. We've been asking ourselves, you know, like the whole fake news thing of like, what credibility does this have? But I think that people are going to be forced to start asking a lot more philosophical questions of themselves and their lives of, you know, how do I know what's real, you know, is truth relative to me and my experiences and, you know, I think that if the like the the psychedelic front is truly here and, yeah. you know, that becomes pervasive as well. You know, I don't know if you're into Jung, but he was very oh, cautious yeah. about that because he was like, this is serious stuff. It's it the is. unleashing of the unconscious. It's and, crazy. You know, it'll be interesting you know, we have Saturn and Pisces and Saturn is, is the boundaries and the gatekeeper. And Pisces is this, uh, ethereal realm of mysticism and spirituality. And we have the gatekeeper there right now, um, (laughs) for another two and a half years. And so I think that that may be, Saturn will move into Aquarius too. Saturn will move into Aries after Pisces. Yeah. So, you know, I think that maybe Saturn will hopefully give us some regard for truth, some regard for reality as we move forward into these uncharted waters. But who knows what what happens after that hopefully we can set ourselves up for like more success in the future with systems and root ourselves in tradition in some ways while still going completely unknown places it's interesting and i think that i think about like you know where was where were we when we entered pisces now that we're kind of coming out of pisces right and you know i think christ was born when i think a lot of people or lived when you know a lot of people think like we're kind of in the intro phase to Pisces and mm-hmm. I think that's you know generally like timing accurate and like he's often associated with the fish because of that right and all that's to say like I I, I think he recognized he was writing and, and teaching a lot of his principles not for just for his time but for a time that you know was going to come and that's kind of what the apocalypse was for and then you look at kind of like the ideas that though Hermes was saying about, you know, what, what the future has in, in store and just kind of the resonance of the age of Leo when the Egyptians were, were big and now the age of Aquarius and how those are, you know, mm-hmm. across from the chart on the zodiacal calendar and all this stuff. It's just like, it feels like there's all these underlying stronger forces that are coming together, you know, at this really unique point in time. Yeah. A hundred percent agree with that. And I think that, you know, nobody knows. And that's something that it feels like we've lost touch of a little bit in our predictions and, you know, people, I think it's very human to want to predict and want to foresee. And like, that's a part of the draw to astrology, right? Is people want to know what the future holds. 
I don't know if you saw there was something circulating around lately where they were showing like the the things from the past that people had actually predicted would happen uh, in the no, future. That's cool. Yeah, you have to find it, but yeah. it was almost nothing. Really? Almost nothing. Uh. You know, back in the 60s what they thought would be happening now. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Almost zero. Was it astrologists or just people just Just people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that feels exciting to I me. I love to see that. That's super funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm like, we just have no idea what's coming. No idea. No, you're right. And it's like, understand physics from a metaphysical perspective and how the whole, you know, idea of physicality is an illusion. Like, you just realize, oh my God, like, reality is so much weirder. It's so much more abstract. Like, it can be manipulated. Time itself can be manipulated. Like, what what does all that mean? Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. It is crazy. I'm like, why didn't I never take a quantum physics course? (laughs) I don't think I would have passed, but I would have liked to be there. (laughs) Do you, how do you feel about where we are? Like, does it make you excited, nervous, scared, all the above? Yeah, I feel really good about things. I think, you know, I think we have more awareness now of everything that's ever been wrong. I think that we're experiencing some serious threats to the human existence, but by that same token, I think we're seeing unprecedented developments and remedies. Yeah. It's that whole like necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. I think, you know, I think we will be pushed to our end with things. Yeah. And I'm so like, you were that. saying yeah. I was an optimist, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, I'm a Libra, so I'll just mirror whoever I'm talking to. (laughs) If I was talking to a nihilist right now, it's over for everyone. It is. (laughs) That's so funny. I love it. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a blast. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. And then if folks want to learn more about Kronos Astrology, can they make an appointment? Do you do live and online as well? Absolutely. Yep. www.kronosastrology.com. Awesome. I love it. (laughs) Kate, thanks again. Yeah, this has been great. Awesome. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this conversation, Kate and I dove into the sacred science of astrology. We spent much of the conversation going through our respective birth or natal charts. These charts represent the alignment of the planetary bodies and constellations of the zodiac at the time and place of our respective births. On Substack, I've included a couple of cheat sheets with astrology basics and how to read a natal chart. I've also included both Kate's and my natal charts. We further discussed Hermes Trismegistus in this episode. The Greek god Hermes represents the archetype of universal wisdom and is believed to have repeatedly manifested on Earth as a teacher of knowledge. Esoteric researchers equate Hermes with both the Atlantean and Egyptian cosmology, Mercury and Roman cosmology, and Enoch Metatron in the Abrahamic traditions. Trismegistus translates to thrice greatest. There are many theories as to why exactly Hermes was known as the thrice greatest. One idea is that he was the master of three sacred sciences, astrology, alchemy, and theurgy. Astrology, as defined by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, 
refers to the science of transformation and the technology of prediction. Understanding astrology enables us to operationalize the hermetic principle of as above, so below. To leverage the connection between the stars and the human physiology as a practical means of actualizing our highest and best potentials. Alchemy is the predecessor of our current day, relatively primitive science chemistry. Alchemy refers to much more than the transmutation of lead into gold for monetary purposes. The philosopher's stone of alchemy is the understanding of spiritual alchemy. The transmutation of our materialistic lead consciousness into the divine golden consciousness of enlightenment. Theurgy refers to divine magic or the ability to communicate with the gods. Hermes was known as the messenger of the gods because of his ability to act as intermediary between them and humanity. He personified the planet Mercury because it was closest to the sun, again representative of his position as messenger of the gods. In DMT and the potential for interspecies communication, I wrote about how I believe we're on the precipice of restoring theurgy as a legitimate science. That we have practical technologies to initiate contact with the gods, what we may today refer to as extraterrestrials and transdimensional beings. That we can do so directly through higher such altered states of consciousness, including with the support of sound technologies like binaural beats, as well as with psychedelic plant medicines. And that we can likely establish species-wide communications with these beings through the mathematical languages of music and geometry. As I continue to find the threads of my dharma in this lifetime, they increasingly lead me back to the philosophy of Hermes, so much so that I recently got a tattoo of him. The image portrays a sacred piece of artwork titled Hermes Standing Upon the Back of Typhon and represents the archetypal man I hope to emulate in my life, the hero's journey of life which I intend to lead. While I do so, I hope to help restore these sacred sciences of astrology, alchemy, and and theurgy, communicating to humanity the relevance for our modern day. One final thought to close out the episode. In this conversation, Kate highlighted how both my moon and rising signs are Libra and recommended... Everyone watch out. I asked, what does that mean? To which she replied... Yeah, I know that you know. She was right, of course. I know exactly what that means. So I'll sign off with the message to the perpetrators of injustice. To the New World Order gangsters pushing the global population towards enslavement and dystopia, we will not rest. We will not stop until you face due process for your war crimes and crimes against humanity. Why do they talk like gangsters? Why they don't move like gangsters? Why do they walk like gangsters? Why they don't move like gangsters? Why do they act like gangsters? Why they don't move like gangsters? Why do they rap like gangsters? Why they don't move like gangsters? Chains don't change like it used to Who runs the roost round here? The coot's gone clear Got the heart from the base to the snare But the word is what's keeping them here Word to my peers The work don't stop till the top Think it's resting but we're not I spread the message and it's love I get the S and the P and the R from above I see the restless with the keys and the palm for the bump A bit of grinding up the herb is what I'm on Shouts go out to mums This one is the icy one Go get the long johns 50 Pret in London if it's on then I'm on I know they feel it when I spit it's like the Missy song Shut your noise Silence when I run the voice Open your mind Why do they talk like gangsters? But they don't move like gangsters Why do they walk like gangsters? But they don't move like gangsters
rapper that I'm here Not to clash, I'm gonna collab a lot this year Maxing out the bang, don't need no gloves or mask for that I got this yapper here, a geezer with the tracks they want to hear Been this way for years Still they sending messages in bottles Was this really meant or was it not for? Can't connect the dots, I got this smelly in my pocket I forgot yo Strictly high grade and that's the motto Unless the plug is awful Don't do OZs, not the ogle I've been left alone to be my own steez Now they clock on, race to the bottom I see it all, I know my options Never gonna stop unless I often Not Billy or Mandy, you're dealing with me and a beast A different beast, not feeling the average I come with the elegant steez and do as I please I am a mountain to a molehill Highlight of the show real, love me cause I'm so real Gangsters, but they don't move like gangsters Why do they walk like gangsters? But they don't move like gangsters Why do they act like gangsters? But they don't move like gangsters Why do they rap like gangsters? But they don't move like gangsters